Hello, and welcome to Clinical Realities, a new podcast miniseries from the Lancet Rheumatology, where we explore the realities of rheumatology care and research in challenging settings and among underserved and neglected populations across the globe. Joining the Lancet Rheumatology team to host the Clinical Realities series are three talented early career rheumatologists, Pooja Mehta from the UK, David Liu from Australia, and Lola Falasinu from the US, who you'll meet in the coming months. I'm Heather Van Epps, editor of The Lancet Rheumatology, and in our first episode of Clinical Realities, we explore the challenges of rheumatology care for undocumented immigrants in the United States. Some 11 million undocumented immigrants live in the US, roughly half of them come from Mexico. These people are excluded from federal health care programs, and even in states like New York and California that have relatively strong safety net and social care programs, those who are undocumented face a huge number of barriers in accessing care. But there are many clinicians across the U.S. who provide care for this important patient population. And today I'm joined by two of them, Dr. Eric Peters, a rheumatologist at the Arizona Arthritis and Rheumatology Associates in Phoenix, Arizona, and Dr. Janice Yazdani, Chief of the Rheumatology Division at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. Welcome to you both, and thanks for joining me to explore this important topic. So maybe we can get started by sort of setting the stage for our listeners, and maybe you could tell me briefly about the settings in which you care for these patients. Dr. Peters, let's start with you. Well, you're right. In, in Arizona, things are a little bit uh, different, and, and we don't have good care for these undocumented patients. As you stated, Medicaid, in, our, in Arizona, that's access. Uh, that's our Medicaid plan. Medicare and the affordable care plans really aren't eligible for, uh, these patients aren't eligible for. So consequently, in, in Phoenix, there's really nothing for them. We have set up and um, a number of charities have set up and NGOs have set up a kind of a safety net clinics. And these safety net clinics include clinics like um, Mission of Mercy, Catholic Charities, Circle of City, and St. Vincent de Paul. I work with St. Vincent de Paul. One of the characteristics of a lot of these charity clinics is they're designed for primary care. What we're doing is a little bit different because obviously we're trying to get chronic care and specialty care, and that's kind of hard. St. Vincent de Paul has set up a, a program where we have volunteer specialists coming in part-time, usually after hours, usually after uh, after their normal clinic, and volunteering their time. This has been a really kind of unique situation, and we have a lot of different specialties coming in, so it makes care a little bit easier because I'm able to work with other uh, specialists for difficult patients that often require multiple different specialists to kind of care. And Dr. Yazdani, this situation is quite different for you in San Francisco, is it not? Yes, um, in some ways we're on the other end of the spectrum uh, in terms of the care that we uh, are able to provide here in San Francisco. So I practice in the safety net hospital in the city of San Francisco, which provides care to the uninsured and underinsured residents of um, San Francisco, including many undocumented individuals. And our population is very diverse. About 70% of our patients prefer to have their medical visit in a language other than English. Um, most of our immigrant population comes from Latin America, particularly Central America. But really, we have people from literally all, all parts of the world. 
And, you know, San Francisco has a very robust social safety net program. In fact, uh, many years ago, it instituted a citywide universal health insurance coverage program. And so we're able to see, you know, all people who live in San Francisco, regardless of their insurance or documentation status, through our safety net hospital at San Francisco General. And there's a lot of time and investment in ensuring that barriers to access are uh, removed, including having clinical staff and translators who speak many languages, robust interpreting services, and you know, a, a referral program, which we can get into later. So it's still not a perfect system, but I think that the city's made a lot of progress, especially in the last two decades, in providing services to this population. You mentioned the referral program or referral system. Um, and one of the questions I had uh, was with regard to how patients ultimately sort of find their way to your clinics or to sort of flip that around, how you identify patients in need. Yeah, so in San Francisco, the Department of Public Health has a very robust network of community clinics throughout the city. And many of these community-based health centers actually specialize in the care of specific populations, including undocumented immigrants. We have clinics dedicated to Spanish-speaking patients, to various Asian languages, and the care of just specific vulnerable populations, including homeless individuals or LGBTQ individuals. And so through this, um, I think, very robust community health network, there's a electronic referral program. And so people, you know, refer rheumatology patients to our central clinic. And actually, the Department of Public Health holds us accountable for keeping our wait times in our clinics less than 14 days, which is quite remarkable. And in some cases, actually better than the private sector. You know, the system's really designed to be patient-centered and to try to remove, you know, as many barriers to access as possible. I think that is really remarkable with regard to wait times. That certainly is a, a, a big distinction even, you know, to the NHS here in the UK. Dr. Peters, how, how in, in your experience, do patients eventually find their way to your clinic? Well, we clearly have a less robust system. <laughs> we kind of work with a patchwork of uh, things to try to bring patients into our clinic, and, and undoubtedly we're missing lots of them. We, there are a number of kind of uh, charity clinics out, and they will refer patients into us with a, you know, a faxed letter or a faxed their progress note so that we can kind of triage those and get those in. You know, we, there's a lot of complicated patients too, so admittedly we have to triage them sicker ones to see first. We also get a lot of it from word of mouth. So we do take patients straight off the street who've come in and, and, and usually you see the primary care doctors here at our clinics first and then they kind of get triaged into our office. You know, I, I find myself sometimes referring patients over to the clinic from my private practice because they can receive cheaper care over there. They have, you know, other specialists they can use. So we often refer patients as well. But clearly, um, I, I think we miss many, many of them. Our, we, our population is really a, is mostly uh, Central American and the Mexican population. And uh, I think... A lot of those patients um, have a little network that they, you know, word of mouth kind of uh, referral process. And so if, if they're significantly sick and they can get into any of these clinics, they can kind of uh, get to us. So you mentioned complicated cases, and that, that was one of the questions I had, because 
Of course, in rheumatology, there's a big emphasis on early diagnosis and sort of a, a window of opportunity to diagnose and, and start patients on treatment in terms of optimizing outcomes. And so I can imagine a lot of patients that you see, Dr. Peters, um, you know, miss that window of opportunity, if we want to say, put it that way. Yeah, I, I, that's very true. Um, there's no question the patients I see are not being triaged early. The patients we're seeing are the ones that have kind of made it for a long time or just survived with rheumatoid arthritis that's progressing or vasculitis where now that they've got extensive ulcers throughout their body or gout that's clearly not been treated for not just weeks or months, but decades. So uh, the, the difference between the clinics, the people I see in my private practice and the people I see down at the St. Vincent de Paul Clinic is night and day. They're much more advanced, much uh, more severe disease, often requiring more attention because largely they just haven't been able to get that attention during the, uh, during the past decade or so. Yeah, so I actually want to echo a lot of what Dr. Peters just said. You know, despite all of the work to reduce barriers to access and provide health insurance, many of our patients still present with quite advanced disease. Sometimes this is because their disease was untreated or undertreated before they arrived in San Francisco. But there are also many other factors that we see that really delay presentation. There's still a fear of sort of deportation if, um, if people get care, or hectic work schedules. You know, many of our patients are working two and three jobs. They have child care responsibilities and they just, you know, can't make a standard medical appointment work during a routine work day. And, you know, we've done some research in, in this area in rheumatoid arthritis. And what's interesting is that, you know, once people get to us, we can achieve similar disease control. We've actually demonstrated that. So we can get their RA disease activity under control, but functional status remains lower in our patients because of the joint damage that's already been done. And I think this just really illustrates that you can provide the best health care in the world, but you can't undo disparities that arise from, you know, other factors, including social determinants of health that occur, you know, across the lifespan. Um, so I really think that, you know, that we need comprehensive solutions and not just health care based ones. And I imagine a lot of these barriers that you've just mentioned also affect continuity of care. So I, I wanted to ask you about sort of your experience in that regard, and, and do you lose a lot of patients out of care once you, once you start treating them? Yes, I mean, I think there are several factors that really reduce continuity for, you know, our most vulnerable um, patients. And, you know, in some ways, this has actually been highlighted during the pandemic, too. You know, the first thing is that, as I mentioned before, you know, many of our patients, they, they just have hectic work schedules or working frontline jobs. And, you know, I think it's just very hard for them to, to make it in for regular appointments. Um, second, you know, I think access to technology is limited. And so whether it's calling people to remind them about their appointment, having stable addresses where we can send, you know, appointment reminders or during the pandemic, telehealth, um, you know, doesn't work for people who don't have a stable phone number. And so that disrupts continuity. And then, you know, finally, under the Trump administration, there was something called the public charge legislation, which basically, you know, was trying to limit the eligibility of uh, undocumented populations to receive green cards if they had received public benefits, things like health care, housing, food, cash. 
And this caused a huge amount of fear um, in our immigrant communities and, you know, made them actually hesitant to come in for follow-up visits, even if they had already established care. Yeah, and I, I, I want to underscore the, the fear issue. I think that uh, people really don't go to care, don't go seek care when, with, with that fear issue out there. And that doesn't change quickly. I, I, I think that's... Um, a real challenge for all, all of us. And um, unfortunately, we all get kind of put under this broad blanket of, 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 of government or of, of the other that, that, that they're afraid to kind of uh, devolve to, evolve to us and talk to us about these kind of issues. You know, as far as continuity care, one of the key things is having a good infrastructure. And I think Dr. Yazdani has kind of mentioned that they have a, really a very good infrastructure in there. And I just you know, to contrast what we have to do to, to do that, we, we, we really have to have a, a support system in place that will contact people, that will make phone calls to make sure they make their appointments. We have to have, and although most of our staff down there is volunteer, we have to have a good support staff of paid workers that will do that. And I think that's unusual in a, in a, in a charity clinic. And I think the, the loss rate on, on patients is exceedingly high and, and, and very difficult. You know, that has improved over the last uh, 20 years as everybody seems to have a cell phone now, even the, the, the undocumented seem to come with a cell phone, which really helps a lot. And it's helped a lot during the pandemic when we were doing telemedicine. We did that for a short time, at least, and, and tried to contact uh, patients in that way. And it, and it was better than nothing, but still not really good care from that way. But at least there was a way to get a hold of most people, although admittedly, we, we still dropped a bunch. So, and I just underscored the, the challenges that, that Dr. Yazdani had mentioned, including the you know, unstable work, the fact that they're always having to work hours that are, may coincide with the clinic, in transportation. Most of them didn't have transportation, didn't have money to get to us, didn't have you know, an easy way of getting there. And uh, as a central clinic and to a city that's really one of the largest in the country geographically, it's hard to get people to us. Um, and that clearly was a, a, a huge barrier. I wanted to talk a little bit more about cost. You've touched on this, both of you, a little bit. Of course, a lot of the therapies for rheumatic diseases are incredibly expensive, uh, particularly the newer targeted agents. So can you expand a little bit, Dr. Peters, on on the medications and treatments and, and what limitations you're under in terms of cost? Well, uh, yeah, we, we're lucky in some ways is that we do have a, a cadre of medications that we can use that are relatively inexpensive, whether it be methotrexate, leflutamide, Plaquenil, things like that that are kind of some of our bread and butter stuff. We do do those a lot, and those are relatively good a- access for patients, and we have a little pharmacy that kind of helps kind of make sure the patients can get those and get those regularly. Unfortunately, um, in the last 20 years, the, the biologic areas of rheumatology has just changed all that, and all those medications are clearly out of reach even with you know insurance those are the, those are a challenge um, there are a few uh, pharmaceutical companies that that will allow compassionate use and we utilize those quite a bit some of them will do it without asking their documentation status and some of them 
will not. And, and, and some, so we have some medications we're, allowed, we're essentially able to use in this population. Other patients, we, we, we just haven't. Another way of kind of getting some of our patients care is we've been able to get them into re, uh, clinical trials. And many clinical trials will have long-term extensions, which allows care. And, and sometimes that's worthwhile as well. But, but this is a, a challenge for everybody with severe rheumatologic disease. And we, we really uh, have to work hard to kind of get them care. And it's, uh, it's nearly a full-time job for at least one of our employees at the clinic. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, obviously, the healthcare system in the U.S. being what it is, um, there are often barriers even for people with good healthcare insurance to get these drugs. But Dr. Yazdani, you obviously have a lot fewer financial constraints. Are you able to treat your patients with sort of the latest targeted drugs? Yes, our situation is, is actually quite good here in San Francisco in our, in our safety net hospital. You know, we basically can get all available rheumatologic drug therapies for our patients and distribution is really based on medical necessity without regard to ability to pay or health insurance. Funding does come really from a, a patchwork of sources. Um, they include you know, things like the federal 340B program, which allows hospitals like ours to purchase um, drugs at a very steep discount uh, for low income and uninsured uh, people. We also have funding, you know, that gets picked up from the Department of Public Health itself. And then some patients have, you know, some insurance and sometimes we can we can bill insurance. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we really haven't had situations where, you know, people couldn't get needed therapy through our program. So we're very lucky in that regard. Let's switch uh, switch topics a little bit to talk a little bit more about advocacy and what you think can be done in terms of advocating for these patients, both on the local level and at the federal level. Dr. Yazdani? Yeah, you know, I think San Francisco is a good example of a community um, advocating to protect its most vulnerable citizens through, you know, universal health care. And I think the, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has really demonstrated to us all that, you know, we're connected and the health of every community member actually has an impact on our society as a whole. Um, and I think, you know, care, you know, working in a safety net clinic over the last 15 years, you know, many of these patients are incredibly hardworking. They're making huge contributions to to our society. Um, and I think we have a moral obligation to, to provide, you know, a basic level of health care to them. So I think advocacy has a, has a, has a huge role. Um, and I think, you know, organizations like the American College of Rheumatology have, you know, taken a stance on, on this issue. There is advocacy happening at a federal level, at, at state levels, at the community level. Um, and the ACR actually recently started um, a group called the Volunteers to Expand Rheumatology Access or VERA Task Force. There's a nice website with vol- you know, volunteer opportunities for, for rheumatologists to, to really contribute in communities that are, that are uh, in the most need. So I think there, are, there is a huge role for advocacy and actually something that we can all do um, to try to increase access for these patients. Dr. Peters, do you want to add to that? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot of this has to be done at a national level, and uh, for um, and, and voting is kind of one of the biggest things you can do. Um, educating our people, our people that work with us, the people that kind of around us, really can can make a big difference. Um, you know, there. I mean, there's. I, I you know, I'm a big advocate for universal health care as well, too. Um, and I think there's some growing kind of consensus. Um, <laughs> um, if you talk to patients, if you talk to um, poll people about universal health care, maybe about 60 to 70 percent will say they're in favor of in some form. It has a lot to do with how you word the question, though. You know, Medicare versus all versus social medicine versus Obamacare versus Accountable Care Act. Even just changing the words a little bit changes a lot about how people uh, react to that. So clearly this is a very politically charged uh, issue and I think that the hurdles we have to get over it are, 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 are steep. I, I think Think that we've made some progress with the accountable care hack. Unfortunately, the removing the mandate kind of changed it a little bit, but uh, the insurance mandate. But there has been some small steps, and clearly, you can hear kind of a, a, a change in the in the discussion. And I think we're a little ways away from kind of uh, getting into universal health care at this point. It's probably going to take some chariz- charismatic leadership and um, a gradual shift over time uh, to, to get there. The last thing I wanted to to bring up has really been touched on to some degree, and and that is, you know, whether there have been substantive changes that we've seen in recent years uh, with respect to healthcare provision provision for undocumented individuals, and whether you sort of foresee anything coming in the near future. Yeah, you know, I, I, I not that much. I, I think that um, we, we've had some progress and then some setbacks as well. I, I still see that there's, in in Arizona at least, there's just a lot of people that are, are, are lost, lost in the system. They're out there flailing around and and I don't have a good idea what the proportion is. I just know what I see, and I see an advanced disease that never would should have happened. I see advanced disease that really requires much more care to get there. And I, I think the fact that they're not coming in really isn't surprising. When we look at utilization from the undocumented immigrants, their utilization of health care is much less than, than most of the people in the United States. And, and, and I think that's the whole fear issue, which we brought up before. I haven't seen much change. I think it's really going to take a legislative change on kind of a national level to kind of to either allow them into the system uh, or at least change the way they're treated in the system. And also on the state level, obviously. Dr. Yazdani, do you want to add to that? No, I, I definitely agree with everything that Dr. Peters just said. You know, the uh, Medicaid expansion in California has certainly, you know, gotten some people covered. But, you know, we have to remember that, you know, California in particular, where I practice, it's home to almost a quarter of the country's undocumented population. It's 6% of the state's population. So these are not small numbers. And, you know, if you just do a back-of-the-envelope Calculation: If you have two million undocumented um, individuals, that means that there's you know at least twenty thousand people with just rheumatoid arthritis alone. So these are just you know huge numbers. And until we actually have legislative change that brings all of these people into the healthcare system, I think we're going to continue to see you know the the striking health disparities that have been well documented in these populations. I agree that the ultimate answer has to be universal health care. And it is encouraging to hear that you feel that the dialogue maybe is changing in that direction, albeit slowly. And that seems as positive a note as any to end on. 
So I would like to thank you both for joining me today and particularly for your dedication and commitment to this work. And thanks to everyone for listening. Don't miss the January issue of The Lancet Rheumatology, where along with our usual clinical content, you can read about 40-year-old immigrant Jesus and his journey to seek healthcare after his health spiraled downward in the years after he migrated to Arizona from Mexico. And please join us again next month for more clinical realities.